0: Thanks for downloading or purchasing this sermon from Christchurch Forward. To find out more, visit forwardchurch.co.uk or join us on Sundays.
1: This morning's first reading is taken from the book of Genesis, um, beginning at chapter 1, verse 1. This can be found on page page 3 of the Church Bibles. Genesis chapter 1, verse 1. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep and the Spirit of God was hovering over the waters. The second reading is taken from the Gospel of John, um, chapter one, beginning at verse one. That's uh, on page 1063 of the Church Bibles. Um, Gospel of John, chapter 1, verse 1, page 1063. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. He was with God in the beginning. Through him all things were made. Without him nothing was made that has been made. In him was life, and that life was the light of all mankind. The light shines in the darkness, and the darkness has not overcome it. This is the word of the Lord.
0: Anthony, thank you so much for reading to us. Let's turn back to that passage in Genesis chapter 1. Well, let me begin by just adding my welcome to that of Matt. It's lovely to see you. It's lovely to be back together as a church family after the holiday. And this morning we are going to begin a a new series in the book of Genesis. Uh, Before Christmas, up to Christmas, we're going to look at Genesis uh, chapter 1 and 2. And then after uh, Christmas, we'll look at uh, Genesis chapter 3. And then steadily, steadily over the next few years, we're going to work our way through the book of Genesis. But before we dig in, would you join me for a short prayer? Father, we thank you very much for this opportunity to gather in your name, and we're mindful this morning that we are indeed on holy ground as we meditate and reflect upon the creation of this world by you. Amen. Now, one day, a a young boy asked his dad the question that all fathers dread. Not can I borrow the car, but the other one. Dad, where did I come from? The father looked rather embarrassed, but he sat his son down and did his best to explain about the birds and the bees. The boy sat quietly and listened attentively. And when his dad finished, he asked his son if he'd understood. Yes, dad, said the boy. That was all very interesting, and I think I understood it all. But what I really wanted to know was where I come from. My friend John comes from Manchester, and I wondered where I came from. Now, this morning, we're kicking off this, uh, this new series, looking into the opening chapters of the book of Genesis. And in large part, it is about where we come from. And it's not just the question of where we were born, what our family tree is, but where did people come from in the beginning? How did the world start? Now, Genesis itself, I'm sure you know this, it means uh, origin or, or, or beginning. And it sets the the foundation or principles basic to everything else in Scripture. It's about where we come from, but it's also about where we're going. Now, it's important to remember, as we dig into the book of Genesis, to, to remember that it's the first book of five, the Pentateuch. That's the context. And its author of which, of course, is Moses. And he's writing to a particular context, to the people of the the Israelites at a time in their journey written particularly to meet their particular needs. Now it's also worth bearing in mind as we look at this together to ask ourselves the question, what are the Israelites thinking as Moses wrote this? What prompted him to do so? Now the truth is it's not altogether clear when Moses actually wrote the book or exactly why. It might have been written... To persuade the Israelites right at the very beginning that they actually needed to leave Egypt. It might there again just as easily have been written to, to counting the moaning in the wilderness. To remind them that, that, you know, that, that Genesis 2 talks about the fact that that's the Garden of Eden. That's, that's the perfect place. And that is what what Canaan will look like. It's a land flowing with milk and honey. Trying to set in context the the way that that Egypt wasn't the way it was meant to be. That's the place of chaos and disorder. So there's all sorts of different things going on in the way that Moses writes this and, and, and the purpose behind it. And hopefully that will become clearer as we work through together. Or it may well be that when Moses was writing this, he wasn't writing it with the first generation in mind. He was writing it with the second generation in mind. You know, they had the challenge, didn't they, of, of, of entering the promised land. You know, were they going to be able to conquer it? Was it even right that they should be entering the promised land? And if you look at Genesis chapter 12, you'll see there that Abraham, remember he was called, and he was called to take up residence in Canaan. That makes sense, doesn't it? Why? They're heading to the promised land. And to remind them that they don't need to worry about what that's going to look like because their God is the creator of the world. So that's something we need to just bear in mind. It's not just an abstract Pentateuch written separate from the people of God. It's written in mind to to what are the people of Moses in Moses' time? What are the Israelites thinking? What do we need to, to answer? What are the questions that are on their minds? Now, what is clear is that Genesis is a history of the story of God and his early dealings with people to give Israel confidence. As they look back, these events took place 800 years earlier that the God of the universe loves and knows his people personally and will walk with them through every challenge that they have to face to get to the promised land. They don't need to worry whether God's got this situation because he is the creator. And it's when we understand this context that we realize that Genesis is not a science text. It's more to say that the all-powerful God of the universe is your Father. You're made in His image. And that's where you come from. And He will get you home. He will get you to the promised land. And it's the message, isn't it, just as pertinent for you and me today. See, what we have here in Genesis 1, 2, and 3 is a worldview. It's a a biblical worldview. It's a way of looking at everything. It's a unified understanding of how the world is and who we are. You know, day to day, don't we? We need something. Let's be honest with each other. We need something to get us out of bed, to cause us to go on with this life. It might be our job. It might be our children, our dreams of the next holiday. It might be the fact that we're getting up and we've got this kind of health regime. We're going running first thing in the morning. Or maybe preparing for a wedding or, or new birth in some way, as human beings, we try to make sense of the world and what to live for. And what Genesis wants to suggest to us is that there are fundamentals about our world, basic realities, that if we get them, if we grasp them, radically transform how we go about this life and this world. So yes, as we saw in the video that the trainees gave us, we're asking some big questions. The big questions: Who am I? Why am I here? What is life for? Is there a purpose? Questions that the Israelites would have been asked as they wandered and made their way through the wilderness. How does God fit into the picture? Does God exist? Is He real? Does He matter if He does? What does that mean for me? And maybe this really important question, Does He care about little old me? And isn't it interesting in our day and time, it is a precisely against the truths of Genesis that the world is worrying. And if Christians simply lay these things aside, issues of marriage and sex and gender, for example, and if they lay them aside and pretend as if they really don't matter, then the central things of our faith will have been jettisoned. Fundamental things will have been jettisoned from the foundations of our faith. Now having said that all by way of introduction, we're going to begin by having a look at the first two great facts presented to us as readers in Genesis in these first two verses. And as we study Genesis together, we will see that as human beings, we were designed in the first place to be worshippers, to worship the Creator. And here we're given two reasons why our first instinct as we look together at this passage should be to worship. The first reason we are given is that God created the world and is distinct from it. So here in verse 1, we have a foundational declaration about God and about the world. And we see that Christians acknowledge God to be the maker of heaven and earth. And these opening words, in the beginning, God, cre- God created the heavens and the earth. You know, they're full, aren't they, of spiritual truth. And I'd like us to see four particular things in that little, that little sentence. I want to ask four questions of that little phrase. Who is the author? What is the effect? How did it happen? And when did it happen? So first then, who is the author? Well, the author and the source and the cause of creation says Genesis chapter 1 is God. There, verse 1. Notice the glory of this phrase, in the beginning God. Now, Matthew Henry says these words. The first verse of the Bible gives us a surer and better and more satisfying and useful knowledge of the origin of the universe than all the volumes of the philosopher's the lively faith of humble Christians understands this matter better than the elevated fancy of the greatest minds. And this is true, isn't it? It's not an accident that God is the, the subject here of the first sentence in the Bible. God dominates this chapter in every way. 35 times in as many verses the name of God is repeated. And so we are impressed over and over by Moses that God is the central focus of the account that he records for us here in Genesis chapter 1. And the God of Genesis is unique and worthy of praise in every way. It's interesting, actually, that throughout the book of Genesis, there's not a mention of another God except on one occasion. And that's in the story of when when Jacob steals, he sort of escapes from his father-in-law, from Laban. And Laban comes after him because some of the gods have been stolen. Some of his gods have been stolen, actually, by one of his daughters. See, the only time Moses writes about other gods, and he's writing here tongue-in-cheek, is when one of the gods has been stolen. So Moses, in writing that account, actually, he's just mocking other gods. And you'll notice that this verse verse 1, also speaks about how God reveals himself. It's clear that the author of this universe is personal. See, God is not an it. He is a thou. God is personal, not impersonal. Now, this is so important in our day and time. Now, some of us may have come across this book, and we may well have even read it, this book, Sapiens. And in it... The author tells the story of the origins of the cosmos and humanity from a secular perspective. And just listen to what Harari says about the universe. He says, The cosmos is all there is, or was, or ever shall be. See, that is a a declaration that the only thing outside of our human experience in this universe is an impersonal created order. It does not care about little old me. It does not know that we are there. It does not care about our future, our presence, or our past. We have no personal relationship with it. It is just there. And you know, the struggle of all modern secularists who affirm that creation is a myth and that matter is eternal is to somehow find out how to make this impersonal universe livable and meaningful for personal beings like ourselves who thrive on relationships and who die without it. And my friends, I want to tell you this morning that they will never accomplish the task of overcoming the attempt to relate to an impersonal universe. See, we know what it's like, don't we, to try and relate to an impersonal person. We find it hard, don't we, they're remote and distant, can you imagine? trying to relate to something that is not just a rather impersonal person, but is an impersonal it. And if that is all the relationship that there is, then we are in trouble. And many people are. Now isn't that the longing of our society, indeed of our own hearts this morning? Just to know that someone cares for me. And the very first verse of Genesis makes it clear that our God is unmistakably personal. He is the God who sees after Hagar is sent out into the wilderness by a mistress who is unfair. You know, he is the God who sees when Abram's heart is breaking as he climbs Mount Moriah with his son Jacob in tow. We want you to notice also that this God, our God, is self-revealed, and this will become clearer as we work through the book of Genesis. So the God of Genesis is founded is found out by humanity, not by reflecting, not by reflecting on, on the nature of things and postulating Him. The God of Genesis is not found out by humans groping ineffectually to, to figure out what He's like. To see the God of Genesis reveals Himself to people. God never proves Himself. In this book, it's presumed. Such proof is ridiculous. He's written himself on our hearts. He's revealed himself unmistakably in this creation. He's already built the proof in. It's there. But the God of Genesis reveals himself in his character. In the cool of the day, he walks with Adam and Eve and he talks to them. He communicates In words. In the beginning, God. No one has made God. He's always been, and He always will be. He never changes. He is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He is a constant in our lives. This last week, I was thinking about a particular situation that has evolved over time. It's affected uh, the church in the United Kingdom. And this is something that I've watched uh, these last few years, thought about, prayed about, wept about. And I realized as I read those words, and I have despaired at times, I confess, in the beginning, God, what a comfort. They can bring. That while the particulars in this circumstance have changed, God's sovereignty has not changed. It's almost a year to the day that we first arrived in Sheffield. It's a few days before I became vicar. I was installed. It's a, it's a couple of two or three weeks. But and of course that that brings, doesn't it, that moment to reflect. And I began thinking about God's consistency in other areas of my life thought of family and church and friends. and Once again, while well, some of these things have changed, God has not. Situations change, our wants change, our request to God may change, but God is constant. God is our rock. He can be trusted. No matter our request, he's always there, ready to meet our needs. Someone said, I came across this quote this week, let me read it to you, I really like it. God is a lighthouse on the hill, never changing, always there. But the light of his love is always moving, searching the waters, reaching out to those who are distressed and need to find refuge in the harbor. And briefly, let me just say one more thing about this God. He is a unity. He is the one God. There are not many gods, which the Israelites or we Christians worship, there is plurality to his being, but he is one. So the author is the creation, of creation is God. The second question I want to ask of verse 1 is, what is the effect of God's work? What does it produce? Well, we have the production of the heavens and the earth. And that phrase, by the way, simply means the entirety of the universe. It's a way of saying of what we just read there in John's gospel or, or what, we say, uh, what we mean when we say the Apostles' Creed. You know, when, we, when we say there that he has not been made. Uh, so you know, so that, that there was nothing that he that there was nothing made that he had not made. God Almighty, maker of the heaven and earth, he makes everything. Everything in this universe was produced by him, the heavens and the earth, that stresses that. And the assertion here is, is the comprehensiveness of God's creation. He made everything and he's distinct from it. And there's a third question I'd like to ask from this verse: How did it happen? How was it created? What did God use to create it? Now, God created out of nothing the heavens and the earth. And Moses is going to teach us from verse 3, and we'll see this next week on, uh, that, 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 that the world was created by the word of his power. He spoke it into existence. God spoke the universe into being. And so we use the phrase from the Latin, he created ex nihilo. He created from nothing. There was nothing before he created but when he created, he brought everything into being. In the beginning, manifest the truth that nothing existed prior to God speaking. In Hebrews chapter 11, verse 3, you don't need to turn to it, but let me read these verses. By faith we understand that the worlds were prepared by the word of God, so that what is seen was not made out of things which are visible. And so the Hebrew writer is stressing there that this creation of the visible world came from nothing. God has nothing to work with. Now, we all create. But we all create based on something to start with. And I imagine even this past week, lots of us have been creative. We wrote an email. We painted something. You know, we helped our children maybe build some Lego. Maybe we've done some knitting or crochet or or some pottery. Maybe we watched a film that someone had written, acted, and directed. See, we all create based on having something to use, a keyboard, a pen, a set of paints, a ball of wool. We don't create out of nothing. There's this uh, little anecdote I read the other week of a couple of scientists who had discovered how to clone humans. Uh, So they challenged God. We don't need you anymore, they said. We can make life by ourselves now. Okay, God replied, let's have a man-making contest. All right, said the scientists. We'll do it like you did in the beginning. Then they reached down to grab a handful of dirt to begin to form a man. And then they heard God's voice from heaven. Hold it, get your own dirt. God makes with nothing to work from. He calls it all into existence. And one final question, when did it happen? In the first verse, the time of the work is given. In the beginning. It was in the beginning that God created. You see, in that verse, we have the coup de grace, if you like, against all atheism and modern skepticism and naturalism and materialism. In this verse, the, the sovereign Lord's rights and interests in all things are shown by virtue of the fact that he is the creator and this is his creation. So we've seen then that God created the world and is distinct from it. Let's also notice from verse 2, God shaped his creation from formlessness into order, from emptiness into fullness. Now look at the nature of primordial matter there, that first matter that God brought into being. Look what it looks like here in the first stage of creation, verse 2. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness was over the surface of the deep. See, here in verse 2, we see the the chaos of the first matter and God's sort of gradual beginning of forming it into the creation that we now know. Derek Kidner says, The somber terms of verse 2 throw into relief the mounting glory of the seven days. And if God alone brings form out of formlessness, he alone sustains it. And you'll notice three characteristics of the original creation there in verse 2. The original creation is formless. It was empty or void and it is dark. And look at these words here. The earth was formless and empty. Or in Hebrew it reads, Tohu Vavahu, Bohu. It's about the only memorable piece of Hebrew because of the alliteration that I can remember. What was the original creation like? It was formless and it was empty. That's what it was like. And furthermore, it was Hasek, it was dark. There's three characteristics, formless, empty, and dark. I'm trying to find a picture to convey something of that, but it's really difficult, beyond our imagination. It's without form, it's trapless waste, it's empty, it's chaotic, it's void, it's barren, it's vacuous, it's dark, it's obscure, and it's the earth waiting. It's the earth waiting, paused in time for two things, to be formed into shape, to be put into a suitable form, and then to be filled. And that's exactly what we are going to see these next weeks. Next week we'll see this. For three days, days one to three, God forms. He puts the environments into place. And then for three days, days four to six, He fills them. See, verse two, it is the earth ready for God to shape it and mold it and fill it and name it. And order and arrange it and make an earth ultimately suitable for people and his creatures to live in. And an earth that displays God's glory. An earth that reveals who he is. The darkness is waiting. The world is waiting for illumination. Waiting for God to switch on the light so that we can see. For God to reveal himself. And as we work our way through chapter 1 next week, we'll see God transforming formless and empty into formed and full. It's God working in deep goodness to create a world in which his creatures can flourish. A delightful world where there are not just fish, but there are thousands and thousands, hundreds and thousands of species. An extravagant world where things are much more beautiful, much more engaging, much more spectacular than they need to be. A world where a solar eclipse happens and captivates us because God has made it that way. Now we know that is not the full story. Genesis 3 will bring in another reality too. But I want you to grasp this morning that this world is not simply functional It's joyful. It's beautiful. Many of us have been on on holidays recently and, and no doubt looked at scenery or experienced things that have brought us smiles and joys. And all that comes from God, your God. It comes from God ordering and making things. Yes, of course, to tell us how big He is, how great He is, but also to tell us how much He cares about us and loves us. It's a world that we get to know and experience him, to see his artistry, to experience his kindness. It's a world that prompts us to worship. Now notice also in verse 2 as well, that in the midst of this empty, this formless, this dark place, the Spirit of God is already at work. He is the first mover. God at work in this primordial chaos. Now the spirit of God in an Old Testament is an Old Testament term that emphasizes God's creating and sustaining energy going out to do his bidding. And the deep in this passage simply refers to the waters of the ocean, the deep. So the spirit of God is already at work in the process of shaping he hovers over the waters. You know it's an incredible reality. That, with the estimated 10 trillion galaxies in the universe, with each galaxy containing 100 billion stars, that the eye of God is most fixed on this tiny planet. His spirit fixed, his eyes fixed on us, but it's fixed. On the seven billion people who inhabit it and it's even more fixed on the people who know him and who love his son people who once in their sin lived in chaos and darkness but as Colossians reminds us chapter 1 verse 13 and we will remember in a moment as we gather around the table we were rescued by the Lord Jesus from the dominion of darkness into light and brought into the kingdom of his son now we have stopped and we have paused and we begin this new academic year by pondering and reflecting on our great God that we have but let me say this to you this morning however great he is he still knows you by name he still knows the hairs on your head He knows your story. He knows your fears. He knows your next week. You see, the spirit who hovered over the waters is now the spirit who has made his home within you. He is with you. Not distant, not detached, but close. And that God who is close is the God who made the heavens and the earth and everything in it. You see, even as the creation account presses us to be more centered on God and less on ourselves to be more stunned by His greatness than impressed with ourselves. The Bible does not do that by saying you don't matter. It tells us we, we are able to know God and to be known by God. You see, friends, this this is our God, the majestic Creator beyond us, unlike anyone and anything else, full of power and wisdom with complete authority and absolute ownership, and yet present with us, involved, engaged, caring for us, loving us, desiring to live with us and be known by us, living right in the midst of his people, through his spirit, by the work of Christ, through his death and resurrection. A work that we're now going to reflect upon as we come to take the bread and wine. That is our God, in the beginning, God. Amen. Well, the opening couple of verses of Genesis are a call to worship, and we're going to do that, and uh, let me encourage us uh, to do so, and let's, let's stand to sing.